Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. Several of the podcast episodes so far have looked at alternative approaches to teaching language and languages in school, such as creative translation, multilingual poetry and introducing concepts from the science of linguistics more explicitly from an early age. But why do we need to reform language education? Is it the rationale, the pedagogy, the policies supporting it? Today, I'm talking to a head of modern languages in a secondary school, a blogger and activist who is calling for fundamental curriculum reform for language education. He goes by the nom de guerre Transform MFL, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the podcast today. Hello, Monsieur. Thank you for joining me on The Language Revolution. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So we met at the Linguistics and MFL conference in Anglia Ruskin last May, and I follow your Twitter account, Transform MFL. What prompted you to set up the account? And do you mind if I ask, why is it anonymous? Yeah, of course. Uh, let me deal with the second question first. And, and really, it relates broadly to practical reasons. I was at the time when I created the account working in a school which essentially um, uh, forbade teachers from talking about curriculum matters with their name attached because the school was anxious about its reputation. And I'd also seen firsthand um, some of the risks of having a public persona in social media and students kind of locating that and interacting with that. But then actually I found that it, it suited me to, um, to be incognito if you like, because it gave me a, a space to speak freely without let or hindrance and without being anxious about uh, my students um, seeing that and feeling undermined. Um, it also I think helps me uh, talk about things in a way which is not about me as a person or as a practitioner. And what I really wanted to do with, uh, with the account and with the blog was to create a space for practitioners to talk and think creatively and imaginatively about how MFL could be better uh, in the UK and more successful in the UK. Great. Um, why do you think that we need to transform the way we approach language education so radically? Uh, yeah, OK, uh, uh, big question. And essentially the answer is because the status quo just isn't working in the UK. Language learning is in, unfortunately, pretty spectacular decline. We've got, amazingly, we've got fewer students studying languages at age 16 now than we did in the 1980s when O-level languages and CSC were a kind of elitist pursuit. Um, A-level languages have declined more than 60% since the 19, early 1990s. And even in, among Spanish, so Spanish is the, the language which has grown in, in raw numbers in that period of time, a, few, a smaller and smaller proportion of students of GCSE Spanish are actually converting to A-level um, uh, A-level Spanish. So whichever way you look at it, um, we're in we're in decline, and it and it feels like um, we've we've kind of got stuck in a bit of a rut. Um, and the thinking that really goes behind um, MFL and and the, the curriculum design, if you like, um, dates back to the 1980s when things were very different. So the reason I use the word transform is because I really think what we need to do is think about change systemically, thinking about why we're doing it what we're learning, how we're teaching it, and how we're assessing it. And that, hence the word, uh, the word transform. Um, very, very, um, very little has changed really in, in what we're doing in the classroom in a long time, despite huge changes in the world around us. I think linguists commonly um, 
um, kind of laid the blame at all sorts of factors for that decline. Some will, will blame Tony Blair and New Labour and, and saying that GCSE became compulsory in about 2003 and this was really the, pulling the rug under the subject. But actually, the biggest and steepest decline in A-level took place before that policy change in the 1990s. Um, grading has been a big problem. I think we'll talk about that uh, either later or in another podcast. But um, what research tends to show us is that curriculum itself and the kind of learning proposition we're giving to students is a problem. Um, and I think that um, not only is, is, is kind of content not inspiring our students, we teach students to say really kind of banal and sterile things like when I was younger, I used to eat crisps or for my breakfast, I eat cereal because it's healthy, kind of things that we'd never actually want to say. But also there's a big problem that the curriculum um, kind of, it kind of, it kind of I, I think favours middle class learners and alienates lots and lots of students who don't have that kind of 1980s bourgeois experience of life, which is full of horse riding and camping holidays in France. And, uh, you know, this, these kind of classic topics that we that we serve up on the MFL menu actually only appeal to a very specific tranche of our students. So there's all sorts of things, I think, that are at fault in our current curriculum which needn't be that way so I, I, I approach this topic of transformation of MFL with a great sense of excitement um, I, I certainly feel it's an urgent topic because of the nature of the decline of the subject but it's not a pessimistic conversation to be having at all. Mm, thanks so how have pedagogical trends changed over the last 30 years then? I think um, Pedagogy is often where linguists um, and practitioners kind of start and finish the conversation about um, about how to revive language. And, and often we, we, we feel the, you know, that in order to revive languages, we, you know, we need to be better teachers. So I think it's a fair question to ask kind of where are we in teaching trends? Um, I think we broadly speaking, there's been a move from a, a grammar translation approach, which had a focus on the written word and as you would expect on grammar towards um, a communicative approach. And that shift happened alongside the process of comprehensivization um, in the school system and a, a consensus in the late 70s that um, language learning was to serve practical rather than intellectual purposes. So. Um, it became all about immersion in target language and less of a focus on grammar and, and the written word with more of an emphasis on the spoken word. Um, and it's against this backdrop really that our current GCSE was conceived. Um, it was bounced across skills of speaking, writing, reading, listening. It doesn't actually explicitly test grammar. It only tests the use of the language and the application of our language skills, not the language itself. Um, meanwhile, I think there was, you know, there were also other methods that have kind of come and gone during that time, including the audiolingual method, which is um, some listeners might remember the days of language labs and lots of drills. That's what the audiolingual method was. And arguably some of that has come back in some of the teaching trends um, at the moment. Most scholars would say that we're at what's called a post communicative or a hybrid moment now. Grammar is in some ways back, although we probably still argue about whether it should be implicit or explicit. I think we're less obsessive about using only the target language in the classroom and memorization um, and rote learning has come back. And I think to position that debate about pedagogy within what I think is the transformation, what we need in terms of transformation of MFL is to use a slight analogy. So forgive me, Kate, if I just drift into a, a restaurant analogy, which I will come back to later in, in the discussion. 
if we imagine our um, our, our subjects as as um, as uh, a restaurant setup, okay. And um, the lesson, if you like, is the meal that students are eating. Um, the pedagogy relates to how well we serve the meal and how well we present the meal. Perhaps even how well we cook the meal. The cooking might be, if, if you like, our planning or our resources. We can only cook a meal so well. We can only be such so, so good a waiter or wait, waitress and we can only present it so nicely if the menu itself and the ingredients that form the dishes and the dishes themselves are not very good then there's only so far that good chefing good waiting and good presentation can take us if we want our restaurant to be successful it's got to have a brilliant menu served brilliantly at the right price and if you like the price is a bit like the grading and so i'm going to refer to that as we go with we go through and really for me pedagogy is part of but definitely not the whole of the transformation of mfl which i think we should be moving towards i think that's a really interesting analogy um it begs the question why have we chosen this restaurant in the first place as well <laughs> right and and you know what we see is students picking other subjects i.e other restaurants because they offer better value for money a better menu perhaps equally good service, but a better menu, better food, and a price which is not necessarily lesser, they might be paying more even, because what we're, what we're offering is a value proposition, not just a cost proposition. Mm, right, that's really, really interesting. Um, I always feel that MFL teachers are all singing, all dancing, and doing five matinees a day. So in this restaurant, we're now on roller skates. <laughs> Why is MFL so exhausting to teach? Yeah, it is knackering, I think, in many settings and for many practitioners. And I think it's because we know from all sorts of data and from our lived experience that MFL tends not to be students' favourite subject. Therefore, they're not really that bought into it and behaviour is often poor. And this is something that um, actually Ofsted has picked up on and other kind of stakeholder organisations have identified in various reports over the years. So a kind of popular and natural um, response to that is to make lessons fun to fill them with all sorts of games and essentially to distract them from the fact that they're learning languages kind of do language learning by the back door of doing all sorts of games in the classrooms and what's what's quite interesting about that is essentially what we're saying is that the lesson itself isn't sufficiently intrinsically interesting or motivating so we're having to find different ways to serve it up um, and the backdrop of all this is that Ofsted for a long time um, thought that a good lesson was a lesson where students were engaged and engagement was seen as a pretty poor proxy for learning. But for me, just because kids are engaged in the moment, standing on the chairs and playing a game and running around doing conjugation doesn't mean they're actually learning and definitely doesn't mean, doesn't guarantee that they're long-term motivated or invested in the subject. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not a killjoy. There's definitely a space in lessons and definitely in my lessons uh, for having a laugh and being lighthearted. But I think any kind of gamification has its time and its place. And the core principle needs to be, the, the viability strategy, strategy needs to be, if you like, that we don't need to play to, to, buy, to get students to buy in. I, I, I would agree with that. I've taught English and French and I found that when I was teaching French, I was completely exhausted and I felt like I was entertaining you know, lions at the zoo or something and trying to tame them to sit down. I, you know, could often not get through one lesson plan. Admittedly, I was in a really challenging environment in the centre of Glasgow and, you know, 
it begged the question why we were doing French and lots of things like that. But I, with English, just felt that, you know, it was, you know, a real, you know, subject that they wanted to sit and listen to kind of naturally they you know were slightly better behaved even in exactly the same place so really interesting um what does motivate pupils i think you know about this a lot what do they like learning about languages and i think the answer to that is actually all sorts of things it's just we probably don't give them the experience of that for me the, the failure of the current systems the failure of the status quo is that we actually kind of treat students as one pretty homogenous group and have a pretty flat one-dimensional curriculum that only speaks to one version of being a linguist and which actually is kind of doesn't really appeal to anyone within those different groups and um, we, we do we reduce typically that the, the, the discourse at the moment is that the way to motivate uh, linguists in the classroom is to make them successful at GCSE kind of style tasks and so what we're doing is reducing language learning to doing GCSE tasks successfully. If that were true, if linguists were to be motivated by doing well at their GCSE, then successful GCSE linguists would be converting to A-level in healthy numbers, but actually they're not. And for me actually, and I say this having been through the UK school system and having studied modern languages at university, what I recognise is um, that there are tons of ways to be a linguist and different students will enjoy different things about the subject. And the same is true, by the way, of history and science. So some students, yeah, will absolutely love the buzz of a little bit of speaking and chit chat and to and fro in a target language. That really excites them and they get a real sense of satisfaction from that. Some students, though, loathe the idea of speaking uh, any language actually they might be quite shy and they definitely loathe the idea of speaking a non-native language in front of their peers they might though really enjoy the kind of code breaking grammar aspect of language some students just actually love words and they love reading and they love looking at words and how they express different things and some kids get really interested in the words themselves and the words that are on the page and some linguists are really cultural. I've definitely got A-level students who absolutely fly on the cultural aspects of the course and are quite happy to leave their language work as kind of quite messy. So we've got cultural linguists, we've got linguistic ling linguists, and we've got communicative linguists. And, and so there are many, many um, opportunities in a curriculum to engage with different um, reasons that students might love learning languages. And I think that's a really exciting prospects because you mentioned your students in Glasgow there saying well miss what's the point in learning French first I kind of sympathize with that I'm not going to run away from that conversation I, I'd, I'd like to avoid having to that having to have that conversation in the first place because they realize that whether it's immediately useful or not learning French is amazing anyway yeah absolutely and that's what we came back to is that we were enjoying it in the moment and seeing beyond it as a useful thing for you know a transaction or whatever it was that we were learning something about the world and something that you couldn't learn in another way it was coming through the the kind of process of learning french um this leads to my next question so why is mfl on the curriculum these days if kids are reluctant to study it and have we stopped to think about why we're still teaching languages in the age of google translate or ai why do we do it 
I, I think the answer is, have we stopped to think about it? The answer to that is essentially no. And I think we need to. Um, in, in, the, in the very early 1980s, uh, when we were moving away from this very um, uh, kind of uh, abstract grammar translation approach to, to language, uh, which still has its advocates, by the way, in, in that time, it was decided by the Department of Education and Science, as was the kind of predecessor to what is now the Department of Education, they decided that MFL should be about equipping students with the practical language they would need to go to the, the target language country and give them the tools to talk about themselves. And this is written quite explicitly in the, in the policy documents. That's why we still assess students on things like booking hotel rooms and writing to their pen friends or versions of that. These days, it's kind of write on your French friend's school website about an environment project, for example. So that, that thinking is still there. And of course, the world is completely different since 1980. Not only do we actually go to different places when we do travel, I would also suspect there's probably a, um, a growing divide between the haves and the have-nots in the education system. And we have um, large amounts of, uh, of children living in, um, in families where actually foreign travel probably isn't a reality. Technology, of course, has developed in a way that we could never have imagined um, in 1980. English has grown um, around the world, not just that more people speak it, but more of it is now systematically entrenched in terms of um, English being present in ticket machines, in menus, in announcements, in degree programmes, on the internet. English is ubiquitous. And I think we kind of need to run towards that. I am definitely not saying that because everyone speaks English nowadays, there's no need to learn French, um, and therefore we shouldn't bother with MFL. I'm, I'm not kind of anti and modern languages in that in that way i think it's in order to be pro-modern languages you have to have that conversation and that knowledge um, that the business case for languages is a different in the uk from what it now to what it was in 1980 but also different in the uk compared to other non-english speaking countries I, I feel uncomfortable saying this but i think it's i think it does need saying that if you are a citizen, for example, of Slovenia or Spain or Portugal or any EU country for that, right, or, or perhaps any country in the world, the need to learn functional, practical English is absolutely self-evident. Not because English-speaking countries rule the world, but because as that Slovenian or Portuguese citizen, you can go virtually anywhere in the world and do virtually anything in the world, and English will be the language of communication. So a uh, a Czech tourist on holiday in Mexico will probably use English. A um, Serbian uh, business person doing, uh, doing business in Thailand will probably use English. English is the lingua franca. So therefore the business case really stacks up for that kind of functional language use. It is not the same for UK linguists, British linguists, English speaking linguists learning German the opportunities for use are going to be different, but that doesn't mean that the value is less. So really what I'm interested in is moving away from talking about usefulness and more in terms of the realms of value and value being more than just the everyday and the practical. Interesting, thank you. Um, what is the value of a language rich education then? <laughs> well, I think you know, that's my favorite question. The value um, proposition for modern languages um, or, or languages in the UK is absolutely immense. Uh, there's often, interestingly, a sentiment that students only want to learn STEM these days and that they think that only maths and science have, um, have value. But actually, that's not true. And that's borne out by the statistics in this age of STEM and, and in the post-crisis, um, in, in the last crisis, I'll say now, 
um, in the post-crisis world. And other subjects, other non-STEM subjects have done just fine. Um, so history, psychology, for example, psychology has boomed, economics has boomed um, in recent years. So there is definitely still space for liberal arts and humanities, uh, and there's definitely an appetite or a market for that in the UK. And I see languages as a core, perhaps the core, of a liberal and broad education. And it always has been ever since Roman times. Roman, um, you know, Roman families, if they could, would teach their students, uh, their, their children Greek. And that wasn't because they wanted to go on holiday to Mykonos. That was because they saw inherent value in the learning of languages and, 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 the, and, and critical engagement with the ideas and contributions that other countries and other groups of people have made to, to humankind. And I believe that the world's greatest thinkers have always been multilingual and multi-skilled. And I think the same will be true in the future. So the value for me of learning languages is, yes, being able to communicate when you travel and when you're doing business and being able to forge relationships with those skills, relationships between businesses, relationships between societies and, and social groups. But also the value is that through learning a language, we become skilled users of language able to process the vast amounts of information which are thrown our way in the modern world and become great wordsmiths and powerful communicators. It's amazing, actually, when we look at some of the characters that are really influential in the world, they are so influential because they're just so good with how they get their message across. Uh, and I also think the value of language is about being critically engaged with who we are as humans and as citizens, enabling us to be more comfortable, more at ease in our identity in a changing world, critically engaged with who other people are and what their life is like, celebrating both what we have in common and what distinguishes us. For me, languages is the best and arguably only vehicle for doing that in an enriching and authentic way. I've just been doing a little bit of Googling around um, recently about, uh, in, in how different countries express this value of language through their curriculum. Um, just over the water in Ireland, the curriculum has three goals. It talks about communicative competence, it talks about awareness of language itself, and it talks about socio-cultural knowledge and intercultural awareness. I think that's a really nice balanced articulation of, um, of the value of languages. Similarly in Germany, they talk about interkulturelle Kompetenzen, intercultural competence, they talk about methodische Kompetenzen, methodological skills, and they also talk about um, communicative competence. In France, they talk about cultural discovery and intercultural relationships intertwined with language activities, and these being major goals of the curriculum. So alongside listening, speaking, and reading, writing, writing, you have this idea of découvrir les aspects culturels d'une langue vivante étrangère et régionale. So there's this kind of real sense of a balanced and, and kind of rounded value, which I think is missing in the UK at the moment. So that's really interesting to hear how Germany and France and Ireland are approaching the subject of languages. Um, what are the underlying policies that govern how we are teaching and examining languages today? And how often are they updated to reflect the needs of our changing world? In fact, we live in super diverse cities and societies now. So how is the languages curriculum keeping up with that? Uh, uh, fascinating question, Kate. Um, and actually, there are, there are various sort of policy drivers of uh, that influence what actually happens in the classroom. And I suppose to, to, to begin that answer, what I should say is that the goal of GCSE languages in 1987, compared to the system it replaced of O-levels and CSE, was to democratise language learning and make language learning universal. And that was a policy decision by government at the time. 
the DES, Department of Education and Science, talked about um, in that uh, in that move for, for GCSE creating a shift towards everyday com communication and there was a widespread belief I'm quoting that language uh, learning should relate um, to young people and their own experience um, and so since the uh, GCSE we've had various um, if you like policy documents and interventions which have um, steered languages since 1987 various uh, iterations of the national curriculum um, GCSE specifications and syllabuses criteria have come and gone we've also had national strategies which have come and gone and, and advisory groups but at the moment what really i suppose determines what it is that we teach are a few things the subject content criteria which are written um, uh, by the department for education um, which are then interpreted by exam boards and ofqual who um, in their various roles um, uh, write and approve specifications and those specifications determine the goalposts for our teaching and then so once we know what the goalposts are from there through uh, flows the, the the content in textbooks classrooms workbooks etc etc how often are they updated to reflect the needs of our changing world and super diverse societies well there's no um set rhythm it's not like we have a um, a, a law which says every three years you've got to review languages curricula um, although they are kind of mess around with quite a lot over the years and you know we're about to embark on, on the new one in, in fact there is a review of MFL content happening at the moment it's interesting and perhaps controversial though that the rationale for the panels which um, the, the, for, the, for the composition of the panels of people which um, make these decisions is not altogether transparent and the work is largely done behind closed doors certainly in the initial phases so it is actually um, a political act the writing of language curricula is a political act um, uh, and, and different political parties have their political views uh, and we as practitioners will also have uh, our own views which may or may not um, reflect people's individual politics yes that's, i can see how it kind of changes almost like with every new government that comes in um, you've got, you know, obviously Labour government made languages not compulsory at GCSE and now you've got, you know, um, who was it who brought in languages for primary school, I think, was that the Tories who've brought that back in? It was Labour as, as well, was that uh, yeah. but then, but then um, crystallised by the recent Tory government. Yeah, uh, so, absolutely. and there seems to be fashions that we go through, like we're going back to a much more kind of grammar approach with literacy because Gove enjoyed that approach i think that's right and, and really what i'm what i seek to do through the blog and through things like this and through twitter is actually i'm, I'm not particularly political at all um but i do think that there is a space for really lively and visible and audible practitioner grassroots discourse so that we can too as practitioners help shape some of the decisions which are made um, at the political level and I think that's uh, what's really exciting about this conversation for example. Yes I think it's really important because you know it's like the whole literacy curriculum for primary school for example seems to be based on what Gove seems to remember having gone through in the 50s or 60s and he's not a teacher and we've got people in charge of the politics there and they're not teachers so you know where are actual teachers involved in the debate I think it's quite an interesting point to look at. How are how are the linguists and practitioners shaping this conversation? Um, so we are going to 
carry on in the second part of our podcast talking a bit more about some of the practical things we can do you talked about cultural capital in the curriculum and how we could reshape the curriculum so we're going to talk a little bit more detail about how to actually transform things and um, some of the opinions of teenagers and where their voice might be in this debate too and thank you very much for this conversation just now and look forward to carrying on the chat likewise look forward to round two thanks kate